0: Good morning. <clears throat> Been a while since I've had an opportunity to do this. Uh, so bear with me. I am not a professional speaker by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but we'll muddle through. We don't need commentary from back there. <laughs> All right. As as Mike mentioned, we will wait and have communion at the very end today. Um, kind of ironic. We had our elders meeting this week, and David was kind of quiet this morning, which really threw me off. Here, we had our elders meeting this week, and David and I were a little confused. We both thought we were preaching today. I won, <laughs> but we're having our meeting, and, and, and you know, David usually does some uh, inner talking in between the songs, getting ready for the next song, that sort of thing. And he's going through what he's, and I'm thinking he's thinking about you know giving us a prelude to what he's going to say between each of these songs and he's going through all this stuff that he's going to talk about and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking you know I'm not going to have anything left to preach on <laughs> cuz he's going through everything that I've thought of or, or potentially have put together to preach this morning you know and we finally figured out by the end of the week that we were both on the wrong page but we're okay <clears throat> so This morning, our main focus, our main text is going to be John chapter 13. I'm going to work on the first 17 verses. If you look at, coming into this time of year, if you look at uh, the three synoptic Gospels, as they're called, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and look at John, they all uh, have information about this night, about the Last Supper. Uh, the Passover meal, however you'd like to refer to it. The three synoptic Gospels all will have a very similar message. John, as is normally the case with John, John takes us a little different direction as he focuses on the event. And John's going to relay to us some information that is not found in any of the other Gospels. So we'll begin this morning. I'm going to go ahead and read through the entire text, and then we're going to come back and uh, kind of dive into it a little bit, if you will. Beginning in verse 1, it says, It was just before the Passover feast, and Jesus knew that the time had come for Him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved His own who were in the world, He now showed them the full extent of His love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Jesus, Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew the Father had put all things under His power, and that He had come from God and He was returning to God. So He got up from the meal, took off His outer clothing, wrapped a towel around His waist. After He poured water into a basin, He began to wash His disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. When He came to Simon Peter, who Uh, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, Peter said, you shall not wash my feet or you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said, not every one of you was clean. When he had finished washing his feet, he put his clothes on and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth that no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, we thank you today for this opportunity to be together, for an opportunity to look at your Word, and God, I pray today that the Holy Spirit will Uh, Just empower me to bring forth the message that You desire this day. Father, we thank You for this season that we're coming into when the entire world will celebrate the resurrection of Your Son, will celebrate the conquering of death, will celebrate the opening of salvation to mankind. And we just pray, Father, that uh, You will help us in that endeavor to lift up Jesus Christ in a manner fitting Him. Father, again, we thank you now for this time to be together, and we pray all things in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I had an opportunity to present a sermon, and at that time, it was very near this same time of the year, and I had an opportunity to basically take us on the decision that Jesus made to go to Jerusalem at this time and the travel plan, if you will, to get him from point A to point B and arrive at Jerusalem. Um, Which again, and I bring that up partly because of reading our text today, Um, if you read through the Scriptures, it seems like it's a very quick thing. And, And we've been talking about that in our Bible school classes. As you read through various texts, it seems like everything is a very quick, sudden happening. But there's time span in between there, just as the road uh, to the Passover, Jesus took several months actually to get from when they began the plan to the actual arrival at the Passover. And we have to remember, you know, we live in the modern society. We go out and we hop in our car and we take off and an hour, hour and a half, we can be a long, long ways away. They didn't have that luxury. They walked. I don't know how many of you have chosen to walk yeah, it's just be hypothetical, from here to downtown Hagerstown. Uh, not going to be a fast journey for you. Okay. So, when we look at the events of the evening here, and, and, and I bring that up because the way that John begins this, he says it was uh, just before the Passover feast. If you read the other synoptic Gospels, uh, they kind of take you right into the feast happenings. When John says it's just before the feast, most of the scholars feel that this implies that it's you know like very shortly before they're getting ready to go in and have the meal um and and that fits in very well there's there's an argument that the three synoptic gospels account of the last supper and that meal are not the same meal that john's talking about here but all four of them identify judas as the betrayer during the context of this meal so most of the scholars have come to the conclusion that it's all the same happenstance. And as I said, John will give us a whole lot of information that the other Scriptures do not. John, over the course of the next couple of chapters, which is actually the series theme for the uh, uh, the end is the beginning, um, we're going to find out a lot of information in regards to what, Jesus relayed to his disciples that evening. So again, it's, you know, when you read the other accounts of the evening, it seems like they had the meal, they instituted the last supper and then they went out to the garden of Gethsemane. But there's a time frame in between there where Jesus is going to take some very intimate time to talk with his disciples. And that's that's a big change that's going to occur as we begin this portion of scripture. Jesus has arrived at Jerusalem earlier in the week. It's been a busy week. You know, we had the triumphal entry on Sunday. He's cursed the fig tree. He's been to the temple and performed a cleansing. He spent days teaching at the temple area. And that's kind of taken us up all week long to where we're at today on this would have been Thursday that they would have been preparing for the Passover meal. And again, if you look at some of the other Accounts, <clears throat> um, John does not make any mention of the fact of uh, where they're coming together to partake of this meal. But if you read the other synoptic gospels, they release, relay to us the information that Jesus tells two of his disciples, you know, going to town, you're going to ironically find a man carrying a water pitcher, which would be kind of out of the norm. Follow that guy to his house, and he's going to show you a room that's all prepared for us to have the Passover meal. And it all occurs just as Jesus tells them. John kind of takes us right to the meal that evening. And and as I said, he uses the terminology, it was just before the Passover. So that would tell us that it was that evening that all the preparations have been done, and the group is now gathering for the meal itself. John, as is normal with him, puts a lot of uh, intimate thought into uh, the message that he brings forth to us to share and to learn from. And he's very <clears throat> uh, quick to tell us that, you know, the road that led them here, Jesus knew what was going to happen. But John reiterates that point here that Jesus knew that the time had come. The hour was here, as it's referred to a lot of times, that He was going to depart this world and return to the Father. That He was going back to heaven. And John words it, um, the last part of that verse, having loved His own who were in this world, He's now going to show them the full extent of His love. If you read, uh, I I use a lot... uh, in reference to the American Standard Version. The American Standard puts that particular piece of Scripture as He loved them to the end. All the way, if you will. Um, and J- Jesus is going to take an opportunity here at this meal. You know, We have, the, again, the luxury of hindsight. We already know what has happened. We've been exposed to the glory that will be. His disciples don't know that yet. His disciples are still trying to get a grasp on everything that's happened up to this point. They've been with Jesus now for about three years. They've seen lots of miracles. They've heard lots of teachings. <clears throat> but they still haven't wrapped their heads around what truly has to happen. Even from Scriptures, you know, if you go back through the Old Testament, it tells us that the Messiah had to uh, suffer a lot of things To come into his kingdom. The disciples and most of the people of that realm that day are still thinking earthly kingdom. When they think of Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus being God's son, they're still thinking that the kingdom he's going to establish is something here on this earth that we can touch, feel, see, know is here. And obviously, we, again, with 2020 hindsight, know that's not the case. It is a spiritual style kingdom. <clears throat> but Jesus uh, has, on multiple occasions, relayed to his disciples that what is about to take place is going to happen. He has on multiple occasions let His disciples know that He had to go to Jerusalem to die. And it seems to get lost in translation somewhere on the disciples. Um, He has told them early on in the book of Luke, Luke, it's recorded for us where uh, after Peter makes the good confession, shortly thereafter Jesus plainly tells them that he has to go to Jerusalem, that he's going to suffer, that he's going to die. Three days later, he's going to rise. And Peter tries to rebuke him a little bit at that point and and, uh, prevent this. Um, But Jesus puts him aside, tells him at that point, Satan, get behind me. And it just seems to... They don't grasp what he's telling them, I guess would be the best way to put that. Just a few short days before this event, after the triumphal entry, Jesus made the same proclamation again. That He was there, that He was going to have to die, and in three days He was going to rise again. And again, it seems like it just doesn't quite register with anybody at that point. So when Jesus talks to them about the full extent of His love, Jesus is not only going to discuss with them this Extent of his love, he's going to give them a visual aid, if you will. You know, if you're like I am, when you uh, are beginning to learn something new, visual aids can be very, very helpful. Uh, and Jesus is going to give them a visual aid at this point. You know, you over the years, I'm sure, if you've done any scripture studies, uh, at some point or other, you have looked at the washing of feet or talked about the Scriptures concerning the washing of the feet. And Jesus, uh, in verse 2 there, it tells us the evening meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Jesus. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power, and He had come from God. He was returning to God. So He gets up from the evening meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water in a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now, the culture of that day, typically when you entered a house, there were one of two routes usually that you would wash your feet. They would either have a basin of water by the door that the individual could wash their own feet, or there would be a servant there that would perform the task for you. And that servant was, as you think of the hierarchy of people in that day, even in the realm of servants, there were servants that carried some social status, if you will, um, from high up to the lowly servant. Well, the bottom man on the totem pole was the guy that was at the door to wash your feet. So when Jesus undertakes this task, I can almost hear the the, the <gasps> coming out of the disciples when they see this. Number one, I'm sure it hits home. You know, they've made their way in here and nobody's bothered to take care of this little task. Number two, at the very least, one of them should have offered to wash Jesus' feet, if nobody else. <clears throat> and a lot of the... Uh, thought process, if you will, around this task getting ignored. If you go back into Luke, uh, Luke, after he talks about the institution of the Lord's Supper, talks about a dispute that had broken out among the disciples. Now most of the scholars, again, view Luke as not necessarily a chronological order of events. He places them in order of importance. So that's why the Supper actually precedes the discussion about uh, this uh, argument over who's going to be the greatest. And a lot of them feel that this argument over who's going to be the greatest dealt with where everybody was going to sit when they got into the meal. Because again, not so much as in our culture today, but in the culture of that day, where you sit had prominence on your social standing. The host, or the, or the, uh, 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 I'll think of the word here in a minute. Uh, the, the guest of honor. If you were seated near the guest of honor, the closer you were to the guest of honor, the more prominent your social standing was. Basically, is, is how they laid things out back in that day. So there's a lot of thought that the argument that was taking place coming into uh, the meal is who's going to sit beside Jesus. Who's going to sit beside Jesus? And if you put all things together and read the rest of the accounts of of potentially where some people were seated, um, there's a good chance that John and Judas, ironically, were seated very close to Jesus. Whatever the case, as, as the argument instilled coming into the meal, who's going to sit where? Who's going to be the greatest? The little task of washing the feet has gotten overlooked. Jesus, as is his uh, intuitive nature, you know, they're already all around the table. They're all reclined, and and I I would have liked to have found a picture. It's kind of you think about how they uh, approached a meal in those days. They didn't sit up in a chair like we do, and partake of a meal. Their tables were only about yay high off the ground. They laid on cushions. Typically, they would lay propping themselves up with their left arm so they could use the right arm to reach whatever was on the table. So their heads would be toward the table. The feet would be away from the table. Jesus gets up from the table. Doesn't tell us exactly where the basin is that He goes to, but... Um, He takes off his outer garments, which typically in that day, probably the only thing he had on at that point would be basically like a loincloth, which would have been dressing uh, very common for servants. So he's, in appearance, much like a servant. He's wrapped a towel around his waist, and he begins to make his way around the table, washing all of his disciples' feet. Now, we're not enlightened too much as to the conversation that goes on with all of the disciples. We're going to hear Peter's side of it, because, well, Peter's kind of boisterous. He tends to put the word out there. He, you know, open mouth, insert foot. Peter's good at that. Ironic gestures. Um, But I thought about that. I thought about Jesus, you know, taking on this task and making his way around the table and what? Conversation is probably going on between the disciples at this point when Jesus is making his way through here. And I thought particularly about Judas. That Jesus washed all the disciples' feet. Earlier on, we read that Jesus, yeah, Jesus, Judas has already put together a plan to betray Jesus. Judas, I would suspect, has somehow or other, gotten his way into a prominent position sitting at the table very close to Jesus as we put the other Scriptures together a little bit. And nobody else knows what's in Judas' mind at this point. As far as we know, nobody else knows that he has put together this plot to betray him. And you have to wonder, as he's reclined at the table, as Jesus is performing this menial task, as Jesus makes his way to Judas, what's running through Judas's mind at this point? For Jesus, was it, as he showed this example of love, was it an opportunity for Judas to not do what he's agreed to do? Was it potentially an opportunity uh, to change his mind? <clears throat> uh, we don't know that. It very well could have been. You know, Nothing that's happening this evening, nothing that's happening in the context of all these events are outside of Jesus' knowledge. <clears throat> but Jesus undertakes the task of washing all of his disciples' feet and in so doing, as I said, he's taken on basically the role of the lowliest of servants. He's crossed basically all social status lines um, and has put himself in a position to be viewed as one of the low of the low. <clears throat> and again, I, in my mind, I can just kind of imagine some of the Buzz that was going on around the table at this point as the disciples talk to one another. You see what he's doing? Can you check that out? And of course, Peter, as we know, Peter's going to let us know what he's thinking. Peter's good like that. Uh, when Jesus finally makes his way to Simon Peter, and that in itself, you know, they kind of take Peter and and make him one of the last mentions, if you will. Again, if you think about the social status of being at the table, there's a good chance that Peter has put himself far away from Jesus, that he's going to be one of the last disciples to get their feet washed. And he potentially has adhered to a teaching that Jesus had given them much earlier on in his ministry um, when he talked about being invited to a banquet and taking a position at the table. Jesus' words at that point in a parable were when you're invited to a banquet, basically, don't go take the position of prominence because somebody more important than you might have been invited. And the host is going to come and ask you to step away from your seat and let the important person sit there. And you're going to have to go to the end of the line for lack of a better term. And whether that's the case, whether Peter kind of adhered to that because Jesus' end teaching on that was if you're invited to a feast, Take the low position, and the guest or the host, uh, when he finds out you're in the low seat, will come and ask you to move up to a better seat uh, and basically bring a little honor to you rather than embarrassment. Um, So, possibly Peter has adhered to that. Again, if you look at all the scripture accounts of the meal and how they Um, talk to one another, especially in the context of finding out who the betrayer is or trying to find out. It would appear that Peter is across the table from John when he kind of asked John to see if he could find out who the betrayer is, which would put Peter in one of the lowest positions at the table. Whatever the case, Peter would appear to be the last or very very near the last person that Jesus is going to come to And as I said, Peter, you don't usually have to worry too much about what Peter thinks because he's going to spit it out. He's like that. So it it tells us there that Jesus, when he came to Simon Peter, it begins as a question, Lord, are you really going to wash my feet? You're going to do this for me? And Jesus' response to him and again we have the luxury of 2020 hindsight you don't understand this right now but you're gonna and all this is a metaphor to what's going to happen in the next few days <clears throat> you don't understand this now but you're going to get it here in a little bit it's going to come to an understanding for you and peter kind of switches gears and most of the the scholars when he uh, says, no, you shall never wash my feet. It's very, uh, uh, yeah, oh, I love it when my mind goes blank. He's saying it with authority to the Lord, basically. He's ordering Jesus, no, you're not going to wash my feet. <clears throat> and Jesus plainly tells him, uh, you know, if you don't allow this to go, you don't let me do this for you, then you have no part of me whatsoever. <clears throat> now, again, Peter, being Peter, you know, later on in the evening, Peter's going to make some very bold statements that are going to come to be uh, not so true. Um, and he's been good at that all the way through the ministry with Christ. He's he's very good at being upfront and saying stuff, and then finding out that mm, yeah, I shouldn't have said that. We've all been there, right? <clears throat> Jesus answered to him, "Unless you let me do this, unless you allow me to perform this menial task for you, then you have no part of my ministry, you have no part of what's going on, you have no part of what's going to happen." And again, you know we have the luxury of 2020 hindsight. We know Peter becomes a very prominent part of uh, things that will go on. But again, even in the context of that bit of conversation, you have to wonder if that doesn't plant a little seed um, for the rest of the disciples a little later in the evening um, when Jesus does relay to them that there's a betrayer in the group. Hey, remember how Peter acted when he wanted to wash his feet? wonder if it's Peter. Peter kind of flips the coin then. He goes to the opposite extreme. Again, not an uncommon thing for Peter. Uh, The latter part of that verse that uh, uh, Peter replies, not just my hands, or not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And to us, that may not sound like anything of great significance. But again, in the culture of the day, um, to make reference to the head and the hands. Uh, both of those were, in that culture, very symbolic of authority, of power, of honor. They're the parts of the body that carry a little more uh, desire just as much as we do today. You know, we, we try to keep our face and our heads and our hands clean. Um, much the same thought process in those days, except that it carried a little bit more weight in the realm of, uh, as I said, authority and power um, associated with those body parts. So Peter flips the coin and goes the whole other direction. Well, you know, if you've got to do this, if this has got to be a part of what's got to happen for me to be a part of everything that's going to go on, then wash all of me. Basically, is what he's telling him. <clears throat> And Christ would go on to explain both from a literal standpoint, and as they will later understand, as we understand from a spiritual standpoint, he tells him in short order that, hey, if you've already had a bath, you don't need a complete wash. And again, we have to remember that this is heading into the Passover meal. They had all kinds of ritualistic cleansings that were a part of going to the Passover meal and being a part of the Passover meal. So all of this would have already occurred for the disciples to be gathering for this meal. <clears throat> Peter, you've already been through the cleansing. You don't need a complete re-cleansing. But what you need to do is let me perform this task for you. <clears throat> and he throws the little... Uh, Twist in there for it. Uh, You're clean. But not all of it. It's kind of his first reference to the betrayal. Not everybody in this group, you know, here we are, this group of 12 that have been together for these three years. We've worked together side by side to try to begin something here on this earth. But you know, one of you is not who you say you are. <clears throat> um, and again, you know, as, as John relays that message to us, it's very clear that even with everything going on, Jesus is, is in full control of the situation. Jesus knows what's going to happen, Jesus knows how it's going to happen, Jesus knows with whom it's going to happen. There's no question that Jesus is in control of the situation. He continues on, he says in his writings that when he had finished this, he put his clothes back on, he returned to the table, took his position back in in the guest of honor's position at the table, and he asked him a very simple question. Any of you get it? And I could see the blank stares around the table. Any of you get it? Have you ever taught uh, the kids class and you ask them a question and you know none of them got it? And you get the blank stares? I could relay that to work because I get that occasionally there. But But that's kind of the impression, that's kind of what I could see happening around the table at this point. Jesus. After going through this ritual, has returned to his place of honor, hey, does anybody get it? You could hear the crickets. <clears throat> so he kind of explains it to him. And again, at, at the beginning of this, and, and I don't know if I remember to mention it or not, but our teaching that is taking place here at the Last Supper is a great change from most of the teaching that uh, Christ has done up to this point. Number one, it's very intimate. The only ones at this meal are the disciples. Most of Jesus' teachings, if you read through the Scriptures, involve large groups of people. Because anywhere Jesus went, there was a large group of people trying to see Him, trying to talk with Him, trying to touch Him. Um, So this is a very intimate teaching scenario that Jesus has put together with His disciples. And the other thing that has changed is this is to a degree a change of gears in what He's teaching. This is preparation. This is Jesus really and truly getting His disciples ready for the fact that He is departing. You know, it's kind of like If you think in military sense, heading into battle, and, and, you know, if your general's at the lead and he gets knocked off, you know, as soon as you step on the battlefield, now what do we do? We got nobody to lead and direct and coordinate what we're going to do. Jesus doesn't want them to be in that position. He's trying to prepare them for the fact that he's not going to be with them much longer. <clears throat> he says, You call me teacher and Lord, both very prominent uh, terms. You know, I'm, 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 you've, you've justly elevated me to a position of honor as a teacher, as, as Lord. <clears throat> and, he, and he acknowledges that that's what I am. He says, But now that I've set this example for you, you should not be afraid to follow through and do the same thing. That message is not just for those 12. That message is for every Christian. And I'd venture to say we probably all at one point or another have been guilty of the task that needed done that I'm not doing that. Jesus has shown them that our example of love through even the most menial tasks is important. That our capacity as ambassadors of Christ to take on the lesser role in some occasions is an important example for us to teach other people. The focus of this evening for Christ and one of the commentaries that I read, ironically, you know, Jesus is going to use the word love from chapter 13 to the end. Love is referenced some 31 times in the book of John. Prior to this, if I remember correctly, the reference to love is only in about seven or eight times in the first 12 chapters. Jesus' emphasis heading into his time to go to the cross. Is for his disciples to understand how much he loves them and how it's important, how important it is that they are going to show his love other people. Get them to understand what he did, why he did what. <clears throat> so this first example that he sets forth in the context of these chapters. Um, while it would have been an eye-opening experience for the disciples, while it would have been one of those knock you back in your seats and wonder what the heck is going on experiences, he's relaying in a realistic form that part of servitude to Jesus Christ is servitude to our fellow man. That we need to be willing to take on those lesser positions, that we need to be willing uh, to humble ourselves on behalf of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> He'll go on, and I'm not gonna, we're not going to get through the rest of the chapter today, but toward the very end of this chapter 13, Christ plainly gives His disciples a new command he tells them to love one another. Now that in and of itself is not anything new. You know, we've been instructed all the way along, uh, I'm sure from Adam and Eve up, part of what God has relayed to man is love one another. But Christ takes it a step further. In the issuance of that new command, he says as I have loved That is a tall task for us, folks. You think about what Christ does, what He did, what He was willing to do by going to the cross of Calvary, taking on all of our sins so that we could have the promise of eternal life. An all-encompassing love of that nature is where He's going with His command to love one another as I have loved. Not easy. We don't all get it right all the time. We probably all don't get it right most of the time. But we serve a loving and forgiving God. And He wants us to strive to do His will. And it began here this night. It began with Jesus Christ teaching His disciples. It'll follow through to the next day when Jesus is going to give His life for mankind. But the message doesn't stop there. The message is completed three days later just as Jesus prophesied that He would conquer death, that He would arise. And today... If you are outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, we're going to pause and we're going to take communion here in a moment. But if you are outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, I encourage you today to pray about it. If you feel an urge to make a decision today to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, but if you feel led to make a decision for Christ today, then we invite you to come.